Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Lark Eshelman for a conversation about her work with attachment-based interventions in war-torn countries. Part two will be released on February 28th. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for another episode. Today, I'm going to be doing um, an interview with Dr. Lark Eshelman. And our topic is going to be attachment-based interventions in war-torn countries. Lark has been on the podcast before. Lark and I have been friends and colleagues for many, many years. But I'm particularly excited right now in terms of some of the work that she is doing with children and families impacted by the war in Ukraine. And I want to also tell you a little bit about her. So Lark Eshelman came to her career in child healing through her own childhood family experiences, parenting her own children, and through her work as a children's librarian, elementary school teacher, school psychologist, and then dramatically through her overseas volunteer work with children traumatized in the war in the Balkans after the war wars of independence from 1991 to 1995. So the work that Lark is doing currently is not the first time that she has taken attachment-based trauma-informed work to different parts of the world. Lark is an author, a therapist, and an educator whose experience and expertise is working with children and teens who've experienced early emotional trauma, attachment difficulties, neglect and abuse. In addition, she's a board certified domestic violence expert by the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress and is the creator of the STAT model, which stands for Synergistic Trauma and Attachment Therapy. I know that you are really going to enjoy the wise words of my dear friend, Lark Eshelman. So please stay tuned. Well, Lark, thank you so much for joining me again. I know you've been here before on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, but thank you so much for giving us your time again. You know that this is a joy for me, Karen, and it's always good to be with you. Yeah. So, you know, before you hopped on, I did a more formal introduction of some of your background, but I wonder if you could share with listeners just a little bit about your story of how you came to this work and what drew you to this attachment-based work. Yes. And, um, Without going too much into my own personal history, I can say that there was interest from a very young age. When I began to wonder about family dynamics, what was going on in my own family, where I was in that process, in that family nest, Mm -hmm. and um, what worked and what didn't for me, what could have been better, and what power I had to change that. But then as I began my um, professional career, 
uh, I was I became a children's librarian and I don't really know how that happened, but it was so exciting and wonderful. And I loved every minute of it. Uh, I had an opportunity then to be at a school as the children's librarian, the elementary school librarian to take a job um, as school principal. And I know that sounds weird, but it was a very fast growing independent school. And they didn't have a head of school, lower school. And they said, well, you know, the kids like you, the parents like you, you work well with people, you have an education background, and we'd love for you to do that. It was 10 years, maybe some of the best years of my life. And my kids came to the school at that point. So it was great. It was awesome. But it left me with questions, Karen. The more I was with kids, the more I had questions. Why uh, this kid is so smart, why can't he learn? This kid is... Um, very loving and caring, but hits other kids. What, what's, what are going, what's going on in the brains of these kids? Uh, I understood very quickly that behavior is language. They're telling us something, but what is it that they're telling us? Yes. And so I decided to go back to school, became a, a school psychologist, and honestly didn't like that work so much because it was much more about testing and labeling, uh, at least where I was. It may be very different in other places, but that was my experience of it. And I and I really didn't like it. So I went back to school again, much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> How many times are you going back to school to get another degree? <laughs> but um, this was to specialize at, at a doctoral program in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in child development relative to attachment and trauma. So how does a child develop if there are no interruptions in attachment, no hits from trauma, or if there are hits from trauma, how does attachment help or hinder the healing process? All that interwoven together. And it was thrilling for me. It was like, oh my gosh, I've opened a Pandora's box, but it's a good one. Everything coming mm. out is interesting and exciting and informative. And I can use this information. At the same time, Karen, you will remember this, in the late 90s, brain studies were starting. Brain research for kids was starting. And so now we could see it. We could actually see what was going on, not conjecture. Yes. Very exciting. And then on top of all that, I had a challenge from a local Rotary Club to help them find a program to help the children of the war in the Balkans. In the, the Balkan War was 91 to 95. This was 97. And the information that the Rotary Club here in um, Lancaster, PA, was getting was that there is lots of services pouring into this area of the world to help people who had lived through the war, but not child mental health services. And so they said to me, could you find a program for us? We'll support it. We wanted to help the so kids. So they can't, like, I always had this yeah. idea that you pitched the idea no. to the Rotary Club. Mm -mm. They came to you. They did. 
Wow, and, yes. that, that says a lot about <laughs> well, that Rotary Club. They are a smart bunch of cookies. Yeah, they're they're a good group and internationally oriented right from the beginning. It's the Lancaster. It's the Rotary Club of Lancaster and it's a large organization and they are very forward thinking and very humanitarian and international. And so they said, would you help us find a program? Well, I called people at the World Health Organization at um uh, the the Harvard Trauma Project, anywhere that I could think of, if I had a contact and said, what's a program for groups? Because they can't possibly send enough individual mental health providers to work with all these kids. There were thousands of them, thousands yeah. and thousands. And the word I got back from everyone was there is no such program. So I called uh, my connection at Rotary and said, gosh, I'm sorry but there wasn't one out there. And I'll never forget the day the guy on the phone said to me, well, then you'll have to create one. <laughs> well, I was in the middle of my doctoral dissertation. And you know what, Karen, it, had, it, was, um, it was a research study on the efficacy of TheraPlay in certain conditions. And Phyllis Booth had signed off and was working with me and I was excited about it. I was about halfway through. My dissertation committee said, you know more about trauma than we do. You clearly want to do this. Chuck the research you've been doing and start over. And I, I was <gasps> equally well, excited it. and, you know, ready to cry. But I did. And it was life changing for me. It was the most exciting experience. Just thrilling. So you just completely it. changed direction. Yeah. And your project, your dissertation project then became creating some kind of group therapy model to use yep. in an area like where something like this has happened. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And over a three-year period then from 97 to 2000, I was in Croatia for about a year. The time was, I created the the framework of the model before I went, but then it was refining the model integrating socially and culturally sensitive information um, and activities and um, field testing it in orphanages in Croatia. Croatia is not a big country. It's about the size of West Virginia. And they had not had orphanages in the country before the war. They didn't need them. It was a country with a very solid family-oriented uh, population. You know, if the kids... Something happened to their parents, grandparents, aunts or uncles, neighbors, friends would envelop these kids into their own families. And they didn't have them before. Now they had 13 orphanages and they really didn't know what to do with the kids. So they said, oh, good. We'll give you the unadoptable ones, the kids whose behaviors are so bad that we don't know what to do with them. Mm. And you can work on these kids. And if you can make a difference here, then you know, clearly this works. Mm -hmm. And much to my relief and um, gratitude, it it did. So it was fascinating. Gosh, this is, I mean, we could just feel, I love how I, <laughs> I need to finish my sentences. I love how <laughs> I learned so much about my guests, even ones that I've known for many, many years. <laughs> in this format of doing interviews, it's so exciting to hear more details and the nuances of how this unfolded. It was thrilling. 
So you you put together this, should we call it a curriculum? What, what word should we use for what you've a program? It is a program um, which I've retitled traumatized children building trust because I really tried to find the nugget. What is it that this program accomplishes more than anything else? Um, So it was very clear from the beginning of working with these kids that they had lost trust in the world. Yeah, because, you know, what's our job as parents, Karen, you and I have both been through this. Probably most of your listeners have that, you know, as a as a parent, you need your kids to trust you when you say to them, don't go into the street without holding my hand. Well, Mm -hmm. why? And if it's dangerous, then holding your hand makes it safe. Okay, I trust you because I have learned to trust you. So I'll do something that I don't really want to do. I want to just run in the street and have fun and be a kid. But I trust that you have my best interest at heart and you know how to keep me safe. Well, no matter what parents in Croatia had promised their kids, they could not keep them safe. Hmm. So these kids were now left to say, well, if my parents couldn't make my life a safe life with them, with in my surroundings, uh, who who can and what will i i have lost faith the program which is therapy based mm-hmm. goes from this experience of uh, needing to be calm and centered and focused enough to be able to receive information confirmation calming and healing i didn't really know that much about mindfulness at the time but some of the activities are mindful um, practices And then gradually introducing the attachment-based activities that would help each child in the group. If we use a 10 model, 10 kids in the group, each one would be paired with an adult. So there would be 10 kids and 10 adults in pairs going through the activities over the course of the program that would help children, I like to say, relax into um, but however it happens for them, reestablish the belief that there are adults who can help me live my life, who can be trusted partners for me. It's not my parents anymore. They're not here anymore. Mm. But there are people who can do that. And I can learn that feeling again of being enveloped in a trusting relationship. It was a beautiful thing to watch. If I could show everybody a picture, it would be of Nina. Nina was a little girl who came into the orphanage. We don't really know her age. We didn't at the time know her age. She mm-hmm. spoke very little, and she would she was found in the streets eating out of a trash can um, in a little blue zip-up tracksuit. I don't know where she got it, but... Yes. Um, She would not let anyone touch her. No one could touch her. We have no idea what happened in her past. And um, beautiful little girl, but man, was she mad. And of course, I mean, I understand why she was angry, but a lot of it was protection. Yeah. Don't touch me. Don't get near me. Well, she smelled awful. The other kids would make fun of her because she couldn't interact with them. She... I wanted to, um, you know, just I wanted to take her home and say, 
just be here with me until you feel safe and then we'll see where we can go. But that wasn't one of the options. Well, she was paired with a, a university student in um, Zagreb. And she, it was a guy. And I thought at first when, when we went through the pairing, that may not be the best choice because we really don't know what happened to her. But she seemed to take a liking to him right away. So she would listen to him a little bit more than she would to other people. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, it was Milo couldn't touch her either. There was no touching for this little girl. So no bathing, no whatever. She wasn't eating very much. To watch her begin to melt, to watch her begin to bring down her defenses was one of the most uh, joyful moments of my life or many of the most joyful moments of my life. And the day that we saw that, the, you, you know how it is, Karen, in a relationship, in a therapeutic relationship, whatever it is, sometimes you can just see the switch go on, mm-hmm. was the day that we had taken some pictures the day before. They did not have overnight kind of stuff, you know, readily available in Zagreb at the time in the late 90s. Well, I drove that poor taxi driver nuts running around from one place to another. Who can develop these overnight? I really need these pictures overnight. And thankfully, someone did. I brought them in the next day. And as I was giving kids pictures of themselves, I gave one to Nina and her face was transformed. Her whole body changed. And she took the picture showed it to Milo, showed it to me, and then walked around the circle and showed it to everyone in the circle in the room. And it was as if she was saying, you see, I really am real. I really do matter. And you can see me now. I can see me now. And you can see me now. It was transformative. She had developed enough of her relationship with Milo that now she could move forward. In the and program. Milo was just for our listeners. The yeah, world. he was the guy. He was the student with whom she was paired. All right. OK, and he was but that that he, you were a little iffy about it first, but. but only because it was a guy, you know, and I thought, hmm, I don't know, because we don't know why she won't let anyone touch her. Right. So there had been something that happened before, mm-hmm. which didn't necessarily have to be with a man. But I mean, you know how overprotective we can be and maybe overthinking even, but still it was a, it was a great relationship. So he was able to then truly interact with her. She, and she with him uh, through the whole program to the conclusion. And it was, um, she was then adopted by a family in Italy. And a few years later, when I checked in, everything was going really, really well. So, you know, we, We don't always know where the journey is going to take us, but this journey, this program has shown itself to be very effective. Um, And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity. So I know you, so this like really (laughs) makes sense to me. Like I know that you can just take an idea and somehow give it, wings and make it happen and you do it in this very um hmm, this very 
<laughs> I'm afraid to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> gentle, gentle, but confident. That's what I think. Huh? Gentle, but confident way. And because I'm just trying to imagine saying, well, you'll just have to create something. And then you just sit down you just did. And I'm also thinking about how, you know, your background in schools and as a librarian, all of these things coming together in this wonderful way with who you are. And then the thing that's really blowing me away is like, what did you pick up and move there for a year? Like what happened to everything else in your life? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a whole other story, Karen. I don't know whether we want to get into that right now. Okay. Because, okay. Um, my husband was not very happy with me for spending so much time in Croatia. It was a year over a three year, almost a three year period. So I would go for a couple of months and then come okay, home okay. and then go back. Okay, okay. So in the beginning, it was designing the program, working with the orphanage workers, who, by the way, were traumatized themselves. They also had lived through the three years or four years of war. Right. And if they didn't have orphanages, that's before, right. It's not like, yeah. oh, like no. we had kind of a system in place, like they're yeah. plunked into this this tragedy trying to figure it out exactly. along with the kids exactly uh i did speak through the i think it was through red yes it was through the local red cross i said to them okay i have this program i would love to be able to um to complete and then field test and they said well we don't do mental health we don't have mental health services for children other than psychiatric individual psycho psychotherapy Mm. And I said, well, you can't possibly treat all the kids and maybe all of them don't need it if there is another, if there's a robust enough program to work with numbers of kids at a time. Uh, no, we, no, we just do individual psychotherapy with psychiatrists. So it was a bit of an uphill battle to find the support. And it was actually the Rotary Club there of Zagreb that said, <clears throat> well, we know the people at the orphanage, so we'll introduce you there. It, it's, yeah, I like the word that you used, gentle, when you said confidence, because I didn't feel very gentle. I was becoming rather agitated that there was resistance. My thought was, I know what I'm doing, and I can give you letters of reference. But you have to be open to saying that there's something new that you are not used to doing that you're willing to, to try as long as it's supported by people who know my work, people who know what I do. I'm not making up anything that's dangerous. I'm using the TheraPlay model. It's well-grounded. It's, you know, I mean, to see resistance when someone is, is willing to help and has something that is, um, that is going to be helpful was very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So when I finally got to the orphanage and then I met the orphanage workers and saw their level of pain and their eagerness to learn how to do it better, that was then um, the time that I was able to take a huge deep breath and say, okay, we've got through all the crap, all the people who say, no, 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 can't do it, don't want it, blah, blah. Now we have the people who say, please help us. We need this. That was the turning point. Yes. The people that 
were there with the kids, their own pain, seeing the pain in the kids, like mm-hmm. we're open to something. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, now in 2023, we have programs like psychological first aid and, you know, yes. all of these kinds of ideas where we can't just take care of the medical or physical needs. Yeah. But at that time, it was like you were creating something that didn't fit into the boxes that were established. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps, although partnering with a local Rotary Club may be seen as an outsider or with some suspicion and different culture and all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it was... um, it was a real eye opener for me to say, I'm working with adults here. These orphanage workers are adults, but look, they're not there. How much did we know about trauma then too, Karen? You know, 97, we were still just on the cusp of learning some of the rudiments of, of trauma. So uh, when one of the orphanage workers was showing me around and taking me into the nursery, And she showed me this one little boy. And luckily I had a wonderful translator who was giving me the blow by blow, everything that they were saying, all the ways that they were proud of the orphanage. And they had every reason to be. It was a beautiful facility. It was very clean, very well run. However, they didn't know how to interpret the children's behavior. They didn't know what the language was that they were, that the kids were uh, using. And so she showed me this one little boy in a crib who was probably nine or 10 months old, who was on his hands and knees rocking and banging his head against the headboard of the crib. And the orphanage worker said, isn't he cute? We think he's going to be a drummer when he grows up. They thought it was cute that he was doing this. And I'm horrified meantime. And my translator who had somewhat of a background in psychology was thinking, I don't think this is good. I don't really know what's going on here, but I don't think it's good. Mm-hmm. But how could I say to that orphanage worker, oh, my God, stop that child immediately. He's doing brain damage. And it's a symptom of some really serious things going on with him. Mm-hmm. So it was a delicate balance of helping people understand what the behaviors meant. And when they were signs of trauma that we needed to address and then what were the appropriate attachment activities that we could use to address them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. took a while the yeah. biggest unintended consequence that i was thrilled to see at the end was that the orphanage workers in all of the orphanages in which we worked throughout the country said <clears throat> as part of their interview at the end we were healed we didn't know how much we didn't know we feel better having watched the process of the kids going through their own healing, we now feel more healed from the trauma of the war. And that was, um, you know, I don't even want to say icing on the cake because it was just as important as helping the kids heal, but it was not something that I had in the front of my mind at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is just so inspiring to hear about Lark. And um, I I could hear this story over and over. Um, And listeners, I hope that all of you will come back and join next week as I continue my conversation with Dr. Lark Eshelman about 
her attachment-based work and trauma-informed work in war-torn countries. So please join us next week. And thank you for all you've shared with us so far, Lark. My pleasure and joy, Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.